Welcome to the show. This is Refigure with me, Reefa. And me, Christopher. This is the podcast about the arts, diversity and culture. This week we watched Kitty Green's understated movie The Assistant starring Julia Garner and Matthew McFadden which looks at how the entertainment industry, particularly the film industry, ran its conspiracy of silence around abusers with a lot of power. Hashtag me too. Hashtag time's up. We also watched Beyonce's Black is King a vibrant, semi-abstract film responding to The Lion King. And finally, (gasps) we went to the outside. We did. And we went to our first exhibition since lockdown, The Prince's Treasure at the Royal Pavilion in Brighton. How are you, Chris? (laughs) I'm really well. Two really exciting creative things happened this week, so I was involved in Jim Bob from Carter's album, which we've probably talked about loads. In the end, we went in the proper charts. The album came out and we went to number 26 in the album charts, uh, in the big grown-up album charts. We also went to number eight in the physical sales chart and we went to number five in the indie charts. So it was a big success. Amazing, that's all new songs from Jim Bob. (laughs) And also I'm having three short poems published in the 59th edition of The Big Screen, which is a it's a very prestigious annual American Beat magazine. And this edition also has an enormous, brilliant, previously unread Allen Ginsberg poem, which is being published for the first time, so that's exciting. And so, yeah, on the general creative front, I'm very cheery. How about you, Rufa? How have you been doing this uh, past couple of weeks? This week has been quite diabolical, oh, I mate. have to say. I don't know. I'm trying to be upbeat for my crew for my followers for my people um but what's really nice is that it's bank holiday weekend and um i've had some really lovely conversations with my friends and family which has been nice we did actually have a trip up to see our respective families and that was nice i thought that was really important it both of us were kind of quite um heartened and solid when we got back from that weren't we yes so, what should we talk about first? The assistant. Yeah. I want those new pages before I get on the plane. He promised them first thing. Where are we at? 200k and two points. That's bull. Maybe you can put in a good word for you. No, he'll hire externally. Listen, his schedule has shifted to 7 p.m. work. Still at the hotel or? Yes. What? This is turkey. I said chicken. <laughs> There's a girl waiting. Oh, her. She's been here before a few times. What is it? The wife. Say he's in an important meeting. No, say he's in a screening. Where is he? What did you say to him? What did you say? They told me you were smart. I overreacted. It was not my place to question your decision. I will not let you down again. You know you can always come to us, right? Come to us first, okay? It's a a low-key film that follows just one day in the life of an assistant in the office of either a Hollywood film company or a TV company. It's not based in LA. I think it's based in New York. So it's a kind of downtown, very unglamorous setting. But on the edges of that unglamorous, there's films being made or TV being made. And there is a kind of invisible boss who's not present, who's a kind of Harvey Weinstein-type character, 
who is behaving in an abominable, abusive manner, but not on screen, off screen. And what we're getting is the constant tidying up and suppressing of that afterwards. That's part of this assistant's role. And everyone in the office is bending over backwards to kind of make allowances for and normalise this systemic abuse that's appearing through this company. Um, what did you think of it, Rifa? Well, I didn't know much about this film to begin with, and I really enjoyed it. It's almost like a silent movie because you're watching over the shoulder of the minutiae of a day in the life of basically an admin assistant. So any of you who've ever worked as a temp or done any kind of admin work in your life, or even like sometimes project management can be a bit like this, of like working in an office where part of your role is very mundane and boring. And so a lot of it's shot at the beginning, almost in silence, and you're seeing her like loading up the water bottle. But you also, in between her photocopying and whatnot, she's like scrubbing something disgusting off of her, off of her sofa first thing in the morning. Her day is really long as well, and she has to deal with other people in the office as well, two really nasty blokes who's who seem to treat her like some sort of I don't know subhuman and then you've got other people in the building who she has to kind of interact with on behalf of her boss and they are like jaded because they've been turning a blind eye to all the stuff that's been going on she also has to like interact with the women that come in who may be all kind of brisk with her because she's just a lowly assistant and they think they're like some hotshot actress or wannabe who end up having to, like, we see glimpses of things happening behind closed doors. And then we see the aftermath of that when she has to, like, give an earring back to someone. It's all very icky, but because of the kind of mundanity, the contrast is like you know that there's, like, this other world going on of abuse and exploitation and probably rape as well it's just like you see it through this lens of people who knew it was all going on but just turn a blind eye and then the key crux of the whole film is when she goes to someone as you would if you thought something bad was happening in an organization and this is what would happen to you if you did and because she's a young girl and she's an actress that you've seen in other things before you know like the Americans, for example, where she she looks so young and vulnerable. So she goes to see the HR person who's played by Matthew McFadden, and he like just gaslights her, almost threatens her that she's doing herself a disservice, that she should keep her mouth shut and go back to her desk. That's the bit that you just go, oh my God, this is this is why exploitation of women has been happening since the dawn of the entertainment industry. Clearly that scene's a linchpin, but it's so well done. It's played extraordinarily well in that scene. All the way through, it never feels dramatic like a big drama. It's always, like it felt to me so authentic and believable all the way through, including that conversation. Matthew McFan's the perfect actor to play that role as well, because he does the smarm 
and then like twists the knife to make sure she won't do anything. What's interesting for me is that because of the Me Too movement and Time's Up and everything like that, it's like all men suddenly woke up and thought, oh, it's not just an isolated incident. And they've probably heard from their female friends or maybe not from their girlfriends or people, you know, read about it, that things in isolated things have happened to, people, to women from the age of like, I don't know, 10 to the age of like, you know, their whole working career. This sort of thing happens in those kinds of toxic environments. And sometimes it's like the, the idea that the women almost think that they're part of the club. They know what's going on. Like I've worked in places in London where people thought it's all fine, but it's not. And you're sort of in or out of the club. And that kind of like you can see it played out now in like in politics or in sports, loads of different industries. It's almost a bit cult like the idea that if she doesn't put the complaint in and if she can just hold it together, she can be part of this amazing thing. There's two worlds hidden in the film. It's not just the world of the actual abuse There's also the world of the glamorous side of Hollywood. So we're on the edge of a very glamorous world, but we only see the unglamorous stuff. There are hints of it, like there are a couple of actors and actresses pass through the building, but really we're just shown a boring office. So her whole whole working life is just a boring office because she would like one day to be a producer. In other less subtle shows we have seen abuse taking place on the edge of a glamorous TV set or a film set. And it's presented as that's the dark underside to this really exciting, glamorous thing. But in this one, it's the dark underside to a really boring, miserable job where everyone's horrible to you anyway. This could be played out in academia, right, for example, because there's a power struggle thing that happens, which is really subtle. It's totally, almost totally silent. And it's so subtle, but women all around the world will know this feeling of like, who goes first into the lift? The man who in a normal setting would probably let you go first because you're the woman. But because they happen to be a Hollywood film star, there's a sort of awkward moment where they're not sure who should go first because she's younger. Now, I know that academics have that as well, or just people in general, like who goes first? Is it the young woman? because of chivalry or is it the the man with the more status goes first you know it's like who do you let through the door first and it's just a small subtle thing but that's how power struggles and then horrible things like where that abuse of power happens happens later it's a really interesting film um it's really quiet but it's got all these undertones that you might enjoy if you want something if you want to feel a bit uncomfortable (laughs) It's a nice performance from Julia Garner as well, isn't it? Totally. I think a lot of young women would make choices thinking it's good for our career and we stay in positions which aren't good for us. Yeah. So it's a great film. It's uh, The Assistant. It's on... What did we watch it on? I think we might have watched it on the BFI. No. I don't know where we watched it. Oh, I do know where we watched it. We watched it on Now TV. We also watched Beyonce's Black is King. You, who were formed by the heat of the galaxy. What a thing to be both unique and familiar. To be one and the same. And still, unlike any other. It's on the Disney Channel. 
and, and Disney we, Plus. And we specifically wanted to watch it on the Disney Channel. And it's uh, her response to The Lion King. She had played the voice of um, a character on Lion King. And she was mortified that the song, which they've caught, they renamed as The Lion Sleeps Tonight, was not credited to the artist Solomon Linda. And so part of her outrage was to go, right, I'm going to do my version of The Lion King with live action. I'm going to make a new album, new songs featuring African artists from Nigeria, South Africa and Ghana. And I'm going to film most of it in Africa. And I'm going to like just do my own version of this story. And it's really stunningly beautiful. It's quite different from Lemonade, which is focusing on the black women's sort of experience and it follows the story the lion king story which you know of a young boy so it starts with his birth and the whole motherhood story with beyonce being this kind of virgin mary type um, goddess you know on a beach and then it travels through his whole life and what i love about it is such a sensual dynamic version of africa that we don't often in the West see or even know about. I just found it really overwhelming. There's some of the songs I really love as well, um, but it is one long, big music video, and it just shows Africa at its best, you know, and that is the continent of Africa, from the beautiful beaches to the awesome costumes. I mean, she does 63 costume changes throughout this film as well, which is just stunning. Um, the plains of Africa to the story itself of generations and family and community. The song that I really love is Brown Skin Girl and the video to that shows women um, sort of at, at a debutante ball and they're all wearing long white gloves and, and ball gowns. Some really cute little scenes of Beyonce and Kelly from um, Destiny's Child just laughing together and it's just a lovely f montage of um, beautiful women. What did you think about it? For context, as a film director, I hold Beyonce in quite high regard. Both Lemonade and Homecoming were in my top 10 films of the years they came out in. I didn't think this was as good. I found it woollier. And I know she had a very passionate point to make. But I think that the point got lost in this opulent, incredibly colourful, vibrant visual style which was still excellent and I never I was never bored for a second I was into the especially it's very sexy and it's got loads of amazing quite jaw-dropping fashion in it like the outfits are works of incredible art so I'm not I don't want to understate I didn't think it was rubbish I struggled with the loss of the sense of importance of what the story was she was telling although it clearly is an important story she did show us stuff in a way that we haven't been shown before but I actually think that's that kind of renaissance of different countries in in the African continent their cinemas are already beginning to do that like when we saw Atlantique's the Matty Diop film we saw an urban magic realist vision of Senegal or particularly of uh, of Dakar oh I also think maybe for me the music wasn't quite on a par with either Homecoming or Lemonade but that's fine She's developing into a brilliant film director and I wonder if now we're at the point where Beyonce is both experienced enough and a deal maker enough that she could go off and direct some feature films that don't have her in, you know, like or or even if they do, I'd love to see what Beyonce does 
away from the music industry as a as a feature film director because she clearly has the talent to do it and she clearly has a vision. I just, for this one, wasn't quite as engaged. And also, I think I may have misunderstood it. It's not really made for people like me, so why should they worry about if I understand it or not? That's fine as well. But I worry that some of the positivity is too attached to uh, consumerism, to capitalist urban consumerism. Even though there was this kind of like really beautiful rural like attachment to the earth that was cut through it as well. Sometimes it just looked like loads of posh people in incredibly nice outfits with posh cars and castles trolloping around. Well, yeah. I mean, of course, Beyonce is all about capitalism. In Bell Hooks' books about black excellence, you know, it's like she's talking about how it's not socialism. It's the only way for people to excel in the current system is to be the top person you know like to have lots of money and bling and Uh, yeah but i'm not commenting on that at all i'm commenting on the expression she the artistic expression not her not her personal her personal journey within capitalism is totally fine but But if she chooses to express her idea of success and beauty as stuff that is also colonialist or or within that tradition yeah i'm going to struggle with it a bit i'm being very careful with my criticisms not for reasons of offending anyone because i don't care about that but for reasons of that it's a brilliant film it's a really well made interesting film you know when a certain artist appears and you take a step down a level in the kind of esteem you hold it so basically this film is rolling along it's doing really good stuff and then pharrell appears and does a bit and for me it's almost like oh why is pharrell here well, I don't need Pharrell. <laughs> it's like, okay, he's good, but I don't need him. And it almost like maybe te- step it down a bit. Obviously, after Lemonade, which kind of sort of like shocked us all into yeah. how like yeah. there's Beyonce, she exists. Yes, I totally understand what you're saying, but I think it's like, it was almost like Afrofuturism for me. Almost, not quite, you know, but it's like showing a, f- a fantasy world but it has its roots in those cultures that do have a capitalist hierarchy. Nigeria is one of the most wealthiest countries in the whole continent, you know, so, and South Africa as well, you know, they, they have resources, they have gold, they have oil. Anyway, so there's like wealthy people. What was I going to say? Oh, yeah, I, t- I agree with you as well that the, the songs are different and the story is focused on a boy and it's a sort of balance between those two isn't it like focusing on the male experience and it's not going to be it's not going to be the same impact as the lemonade ever no but then we're talking about like lemonade is one of the great works of art of the 21st century so far so the peaks that she hits are extraordinary peaks and this is still one of the the best music films of the year and also i just i always find her really inspiring i just think like if you had unlimited resources, like she's making this most spectacular art that she wants to. She's like, right, I'm going to go and do my own Lion King. I'm just going to like ship a load of, I like the bloke with the big hat. Who's going to dance around in, in, a, <laughs> yeah. in the desert? But I'm like, going to tell him he not? can't wear a hat. Why not? You yeah. know, no, fair if you play, want why not? Naomi Campbell, who's like icon for generations of black women, get her on the, you know, like all of that. She can just do whatever she wants. And that's what I find interesting and incredibly inspiring. And I just love that she's like got a different body shape now than uh, she's had three kids. I don't know enough about her personal life, right? 
She's got twins, hasn't she? she? So, so she three. looks different. She was dancing in a full-length uh, cat suit, practically see-through, and people love it because she's acknowledging her her roots, you know, and that's might be trite and whatever, but it's damn more interesting than, I don't know, some bloke from Elbow going to the Cotswolds, you know. Oh, fuck that shit. You know what I mean? I would, like, it I, is I do agree with you completely. So that's Beyonce's Blackest King. It's on Disney Plus Channel. Yes. But you can listen to the album. Is the album's just The Lion King. It's on Spotify and all the usual places. And finally, we get to talk about going on our trips. Oh, yeah. Going outside into the real world. Do you want to talk about taking me to the Royal Pavilion? Obviously, this series of Refigure has been a homebound thing and we called it the check-in series for that reason. And I do think it's slightly dissembled into just being a review of TV, but then that's what everyone's lives has done, so that's fine. But over this past week, we have been able to get out and we booked a time slot ticket to go to the Royal Pavilion in Brighton and see a beautiful exhibition called A Prince's Treasure. The Royal Pavilion was able to borrow back a load of this original stuff and put it back where it originally was in the Royal Pavilion. So that was already a major achievement and a big kind of win for the city. But of course it happened just before lockdown. So I believe, I'm not, I might be making this up, but I believe that the, that the Royals have now extended the exhibition permission so that it can go on for a couple of years after the lockdown. But at the moment, the Royal Pavilion, like some exhibition spaces, is open, but you, you have kind of these timed entry slots and they're letting in far fewer people and you have to wear a mask all the way around. And they had all the, a few other kind of restrictions, like there was only one loo open to the public and you kind of had to go to the loo before you went round the exhibition, which was a bit funny. Um, but basically what it is, is it's the same place that's always been, the Royal Pavilion, this incredibly opulent um, pile of 19th century chinoiserie and exoticism and very expensive high-tech for the time equipment. Uh, but it's been padded out with all these amazing extra bits. Um, but the tour itself was exactly like the tours we've done before. So I kind of want to know two things. I want to know what you thought about the Prince's Treasure as an addition to the, the pavilion. And you can be totally honest, brutally honest. And also what you thought about the experience of going to a museum under these conditions. This is really bad because we have a lot of... You personally have a lot of ties with the Brighton Museum. You know, they they like you. You were, you were the blogger in residence some time ago and we have friends that work there but I just found it a bit of a non a bit of a non-event I think in my head I think I thought it was going to be like like I've been to the pavilion a number of times and I think I thought it was going to be like a special room with like the crown jewels of what of equivalent oh, like that it would all be displayed yes. separately and explained better maybe I mean like I remember going to the V&A and seeing the Maharaj Museum and seeing like these huge diamonds and I don't know I wanted more shiny objects and what I got was quite an uh, uncomfortable going round the pavilion wearing this uh mask and people weren't really social distancing properly and people were not really wearing their masks properly either not covering their noses I keep seeing that everywhere so it was a bit hot on that day and so wearing a mask indoors for like 
couple of hours is too too stressful and also it did look really it did look different inside the dining hall looked like very opulent and beautiful and the clocks looked nice where they were supposed to be um and the, just that like knowing that there was this little anteroom where they people would prepare the beautiful dishes all of that I've kind of already knew about and then the kitchen seemed to have had a facelift but certainly what was most interesting for me was the music room and the sort of bit before the music room I can't remember it's a sort of another like ballroom like a drawing room drawing almost. room well the last time I'd been there some of the walls were still being um, renovated and so it looked really spectacular but of course going around with this bloody mask on and people being a bit like half like overly um, cautious and then half like brushing past you as they go past the narrow stairwells and all that it was a bit intense and also the staff themselves felt a bit like awkward and like a bit concerned about everything as well i don't know how anybody does vigil vigilanting it's vigilating invigilating <laughs> isn't it what's it called I know okay. what you mean. I can't remember the word. Invigilating reminds me of what exam people do. Yeah, I think... But it may be the same thing. Maybe the same just, name. Yeah, it's just not a very... Stewarding or something. Yeah, it's just not a very good thing to do on a hot day. But it's always interesting. If you've never been to the pavilion, it's always worth having a look around. I mean, I really love the museum as a space. We used to go there all the time when they had a lovely cafe. And of course, we, we got married in there. So we feel very tied to it as well although for me personally i wasn't that bothered about the exhibition what did you think about it so i agree with you that it was a difficult experience going around masked especially on a really hot day and i didn't particularly find people's mask etiquette was poor i think there were a couple of bad maskers but most people i saw going around there were good maskers but at the same time i do think there was that sense of some people think that if they're wearing a mask that social distancing doesn't matter at all anymore, which was annoying. But I think the biggest thing was the heat. I just think it was too hot to be there for that long amount of time with a mask on. Everyone's doing this in every cultural industry where they're trying to find a way forward. And that was a legit way forward. And I'm happy we went, but I didn't enjoy the experience either. I don't agree with you about the the kind of the Prince's Treasure exhibition itself mainly because I did notice lots of changes and that music room stunning. The banqueting hall, which was already this kind of incredible experience to wander through that banqueting hall, is at its absolute peak and the clocks you mention are just totally gorgeous. If one isn't physically comfortable in space, one doesn't want to linger. So the problem is we're kind of doing it to get through it. And a space like that you really want to just be able to stand and look at things and lose yourself in, oh, look, they've put this amazing, beautiful um, pagoda decoration up and there's eight of them. I really want to look at these, but at the same time, I'm not comfortable. It was a real loss that there isn't a cafe in there because we could have really done with, at the end of that bit, a room to take our masks off and have a cup of tea without having to go back out into Brighton. And that would have made a big difference. And obviously they haven't been able to find a way yet to open a cafe Good effort, Pert Royal Pavilion. But there's a real problem with opening stuff up, isn't there? So much stuff. Their people are trying these things. Would you recommend going to the Royal Pavilion? Well, if it's really cold weather and you're in Brighton and it's miserable, put your mask on and go, but not in the sunshine, no. 
<laughs> so let's wrap that up. Uh, that's the Royal Pavilion in Brighton. The exhibition is called A Prince's Treasure and it will be open for a while yet, I guess. What are you reading for? What are you reading for? What are you reading for? Reefer, 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 reefer. What are you reading? I just like to say the word treasure quite a lot. Treasure. There's two, there's two or three words I really like to say. Precious, fresh. <laughs> what is it about you and the word fresh? You love the word and fresh. And treasure. Fresh. They're just nice fresh. words. But you've got a particular pronunciation of fresh that's really good. My <laughs> book that I'm reading is called Untamed, Stop Pleasing, Start Living by Glennon Doyle. It's a non-fiction. But she tells the story of how she became famous, was a New York best-selling author, and she's at a conference and she meets this other woman and she falls in love with this other woman. But her previous book was all about how she'd overcome addiction and how she had this almost perfect life with her kids and her husband, right? This book is about how do you, like, untangle yourself from a marriage that you're not happy in? How do you become this new woman with a new woman? And um, it's written like a sort of self-help book, kind of part memoir as well. It must be something about the font on the cover or the weird design on the front as well that I actually thought that it was one of those self-help books from the 80s, like Louise L. Hayes books, <laughs> which were all really authentic and had loads of gold in them. And then I noticed, oh, Brené Brown's given it a quote on the front and Elizabeth Gilbert and Oprah and then I thought oh actually this only came out this year I read it in one sitting I really like her style it was almost like a Judy Bloom for adults <laughs> um so I was all high from reading it and I'm like oh this is great and then um so I stumbled across Goodreads and on Goodreads you get reviews and people went to town on this book (laughs) there were at least two that i read that were really long like almost blog posts in themselves with gifts and everything about how they absolutely hated this book people said she contradicts herself throughout took it upon herself to explain how to bring up children and how to (laughs) how to fix racism and how like she's this expert on everything and but also like how she doesn't care what other people think and everything that they're saying that they hate is true, is correct, but it doesn't stop me from liking it as well. But they all, they absolutely hate it. You know, Bell Hooks's book, and I'm reading Audrey Lord's book at the moment as well, they all talk about like women hating on other women, you know, and how we hate ourselves. I really enjoyed it. Not bothered what you think, you know, like, but, you know, it's like, that's what I'm reading. That's what I've read. In one day. Ka-ting! Let's say that again. And that's Untamed, Stop Pleasing, Start Living by Glennon Doyle. What are you reading? T-T. Um, well, Layla F. Saad parlayed a hit Instagram hashtag into a, into a book deal. Hashtag me and white supremacy. And so off the back of that, she's written a workbook for white people which also interestingly has Elizabeth Gilbert quoted on the front. It's called Me and White Supremacy, How to Recognise Your Privilege, Combat Racism and Change the World. And it's specifically written to challenge, but not too much to stop them reading it, white people to explore their own unconscious bias and also give a kind of potted explanation of why 
I think a large chunk of it is for people who don't kind of quite believe that they can be privileged because their own lives are not particularly happy and successful. It's that kind of book. It's a little bit too cheesy and workbooky, um, but I think it's probably quite useful. I did find some of it a little bit disconcerting um, and irritating. So probably that's it doing a good job, I'd have thought. So that is Leila F. Saad's Me and White Supremacy. It's published by Quercus. It's a kind of chunky hardback book of exercises. And that's our show. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Fly up.